0: Welcome, everyone. Uh, if I could just remind people to turn off their cell phones, please. Uh, I think Shadal would be uh, honored and uh, really happy to see uh, so many people coming out to find out about his, uh, his Bible commentary. Uh, Shadal, as most of you presumably know, was not is not standardly seen as part of the kind of canon of uh, the standard biblical commentaries. Uh, when I was in yeshiva, at, uh, in Merkaz Arav many years ago, I was sitting and reading a book about Shadal, and I remember one of the older boys came up to me and said, I'm not sure that it's okay to read about Shadal here in the yeshiva. <laughs> and I said, oh... And so I said, "How about if I ask the Rosh Yeshiva?" So I went to Rav Tzvi Yudakook, Zeh and I said, "I was reading about uh, a, a book about Shadal, and somebody said that maybe you shouldn't be reading that book." And he said, uh, "You know, I disagree with Shadal about a few things, but you're allowed to read the book." So, uh, so th- there was a, a blessing of Rav Tzvi uh who, uh, but. Shadal continues to be a little bit controversial, but there's been a a, a great uh, increase in interest in his commentary in the last few years, and maybe at the end of today's session we'll be able to speculate about why Shadal's uh, commentary on the Torah is appealing to more people these days than uh, uh, I think there were some outside. Uh okay. Uh <laughs> Shadal was a brilliant Renaissance man. He was born uh, in Trieste, in Italy, in 1800. Uh, He died in 1865. Most of his life, he worked in the Orthodox uh, rabbinical seminary in Padua, that was uh, founded just before uh, he came uh, to uh, to work there. It was a uh, an Orthodox uh, uh, rabbinical seminary in which there were secular studies in addition to. It was kind of like the yeshiva university uh, of Italy, although as we will see from the continuation here, a model like that was not so unusual in Italy as it was in other, uh, in, in other countries of the uh, Jewish diaspora. Cecil Roth once wrote of him, he has been termed the greatest Jew in an age so peculiar, peculiarly rich in great Jews. Uh, and uh, Cecil Roth was a great historian and... Right. Uh, like his uh, his summary, by the time Shaddal was 18 years old, he had studied the entire Bible, Mishnah. He had mastered Hebrew, Latin, Italian, German, and French, mathematics, geography, and history. He'd gone through the Shas, the Babylonian Talmud, twice by age 18, and he had begun translating Aesop's fables into Hebrew. Uh, In Italian, he had published a volume of poetry and a book about Hebrew grammar. Again, this is before he turned 18 years old. Uh, A lot of his writing, uh, I've been attracted to Shadal for many years, and one of the reasons that I never actually wrote about Shadal is because a lot of his writings are in Italian, and I don't read Italian, and I, I feel that... Uh, A good scholar should be able to read all the works that were written. Uh, Most of his writings are in Hebrew, but some of them are in in Italian, including a four-volume autobiography. And they tell me that the first volume of the autobiography is about his life up to the age 14. And I, 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 I try to think to myself, is there anything that I did... Before age 14, that I would want to record it, but anyways, so I, I don't know what's there, because I don't read Italian, but apparently there was, uh, there, there was uh, enough to fill a volume. Sadly, his mother died when he was 13 years old, and, uh, it, he had a very sad life. Uh, his wife died when she was 38 years old. He had eight children from, uh, from two wives. After his, wife, his first wife died, he married his first wife's uh, sister. And five of his eight children died in his lifetime. Uh, and uh, he, he worked in this rabbinical seminary all of his life, but apparently they didn't pay their teachers very well. Can you imagine... A Jewish institution that didn't pay teachers very, very well. And so he was, he was often very poor. I, I, I was recently preparing the class. I was just reading about the difficulties that he had in publishing his, uh, his commentary on Yeshayahu, uh, because he had no money to pay the printers to print it and he needed to get uh a a certain number of commitments he had all of his students uh he asked them if they could each commit to buy 10 copies which they would then go and sell to people but it wasn't uh it it wasn't enough and then some friend of his in France wrote to him I'll buy a 100 copies and that was the only way that he was able to print his uh, his commentary on uh, on Yishayahu uh and I'm very glad that uh that that Friend in France uh, came up with the <laughs> commitments to uh, 100. So now we can use that uh, that commentary. He was a very modern man with a lot of with I said as before I said a very wide secular education and uh, aside from his very deep uh, Jewish education, he was a strong opponent of Reformed Judaism. Although. Like many of the opponents of uh, of uh, Reform Judaism in the 19th century, he was friendly with people like Abraham Geiger and uh, Rabbi Shmuel Rafal Hirsch was also friendly with uh, with Abraham Geiger on a, a personal level. Uh, even though that, you know there, were, there there are letters that are exchanged between these two Orthodox rabbis and Geiger that are on on the friendly level, although on, on, in their uh, in their writings you can see that they are very much against. Uh, uh, against the reform of Judaism, although we'll see a text that uh, that talks about that also. Uh, he taught Bible and Jewish thought, and uh, as I said, there's been a recent flurry of uh, scholarly interest in Shadal. I happened to notice uh, just because I was a student of Nechama Levovich, Zichron uh, Ali Vercha, back in the 70s, and I, I, I had noticed, and then somebody else wrote about this phenomenon, that uh, Nahama quoted Shadal frequently, but sometimes when she quoted him, she just went ballistic. She just, how could he say something like this? Shadal's explanation doesn't have the slightest connection to the words of the verse. Uh, his words here appear to us to be an example of teaching the reasons for uh, the, the commandments inappropriately in a way that 's likely to do more harm than good. He got people angry including uh, including the uh who didn 't generally get angry at Torah commentators and uh, and and who uh, loved commentators on the Torah so at the end of today 's session maybe you 'll have a uh, an understanding about why. Some people uh, like uh, Shadal a lot and why some people don't like him uh, that much. I will be looking, of course, at some of the more controversial and uh, and unusual comments. He was a, a great lover of Hebrew grammar and he does extremely careful uh, grammatical analysis of, uh, of words of the Hebrew Bible. We're not going to be doing comments of that nature uh, today. We're going to be doing some of his more... Uh, uh, Interesting, picayune, uh unusual kinds of, uh, of comments. Uh, maybe I'll just finish off the introduction with just one uh, more quotation from Shadal. Uh, there was a great uh, uh, a Roman thinker back in the second century BCE called Terence, who said, I remember I learned this in a humanities course uh, in university way back in the day, Homo sum humani nihil a me puto. I am a human being and I don't consider anything human foreign to me. That uh, I uh, you know uh, I I'm interested in the study of everything uh related to human beings and Shatal once said Udai sum, I'm a Jew. Yudaiki, ki nihil a me puto. I don't consider anything Jewish Foreign to me, and he was interested in the Bible, interested in the Hebrew language. He loved the Hebrew grammar; we'll see that a little bit in these uh, in these texts. And uh, and he was interested in in, in Talmud. He had a uh, an iffy relationship with Jewish mysticism. I don't know whether we're going to go uh, go into this, but uh, but he also was a great uh, was a great poet, writing poetry and writing about poetry. Okay, so we'll just start with the, uh, the, the, text here, and, uh, one after another we'll see various, uh, surprising texts here, and the first surprise here is, uh, his commentary on, uh, Shmot uh, Kafdal at Zion, the very famous verse where the Jewish people said, Naaseh v'nishma. We will do, and we will hear, and we all know what Jewish tradition tells us about Naaseh v'nishma. And then Shatal says, Naaseh, Hashem. That there are some mitzvot that we're supposed to do because they are mitzvot asay, because they are positive commandments, and there are other things, that mitzvot, that we're simply supposed to listen to when we refrain from stealing or we refrain from murdering. We're not actually doing anything, and that's what na'aseh. Venishma means. Did I hear a few groans as I was <laughs> reading this? So, you know, it's, it's kind of shocking. I once heard Professor Uriel Simon, the uh, wonderful professor of uh, Bible. Maybe some of you had the, uh, uh, the schut of hearing him. He taught yesterday or the day before. I once heard him say that he thinks that Shadal is right. But oy voi, if you teach that in a Jewish school, that, you know, in a Jewish school, with little, with small children, you have to teach them, you know, so much of our Jewish thought is based on saying that na'asev and ishma means we will do, even though we don't totally understand, we're going to do it, and then we'll understand it later, and we hope we'll understand it. Uh, so he said, you have to teach that in a Jewish elementary school, or maybe even in a Jewish high school, but with... Uh, you know, an adult crowd. You can tell them that maybe Shadal's understanding of the pshat level of this verse is the correct understanding of the pshat level of this uh, this verse. Uh, I've been inter- most of my career. I've been interested in uh, medieval Bible commentators, and particularly in Rashbam's uh, commentary on the Bible. Rashi's uh, Rashi's grandson, uh, Rashbam, and Rashbam. One of the surprising and very interesting aspects of Rashbam's commentary on the Torah is sometimes he is willing to explain the verse in such a way that it doesn't conform with the standard halachic uh, uh, understanding of the verse. And Shadal. Shadal follows in Rashbam's uh, footsteps, and people argue about whether the in text number two here, where when he attributes to Rashbam this kind of new reading of the text, whether it really is correct that Rashbam uh, attri- uh, understood the text that way. But Shadal understands this text this way. Uh, it says uh, that a Kohain is not allowed to uh, to go to a funeral except for a uh, Except for the funeral of one of his uh, seven relatives, uh, uh, the seven relatives for which we would uh, sit shiva. And the phrase is, nefesh lo yitama be'amav, to, to a person, he should not make himself impure by uh, coming in contact with a dead body. And then that word be'amav is a very difficult word, and Shadal writes in text number two here, ish. Be'am lo yitama leNefesh Adam. So that word be'amav should kind of be a, 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 a attached to the subject of the verse. No man from among the nation of Kohanim, the tribe of Kohanim, the group of Kohanim should uh, uh, make himself impure by going to a funeral. And then he just throws in. Kamo, like the verse that says about the high priest, it says, "Vitulah <laughs> me'amav yikach isha, that a high priest should marry a virgin, me'amav, <laughs> and he says, Kilafi ha'pshat kohenet, that actually the kohen gadol has to marry somebody who is a uh, bat kohen. There's no halacha like that. Nowhere in the Halakha does it say that, uh, but Rash, but Shadal says that's the simple understanding of the words here, and that's how to understand that difficult word ba'amav here. And with, with, this isn't a session about Rashbam, so we won't discuss whether Rashbam actually did or did not say this. I think that he did. Uh, I, you know, I, I want to. Go, run through a bunch of texts quickly to, tr- so you try to get a little bit of a feeling of, uh, the, some of the surprising things that, uh, that Shadal does with the biblical text. Maybe let's open our Tanakhim and look at the verse for the next one. This is in Shmoth Kaf Aleph Lamedalah 21, uh, 34. We'll start in, uh, in verse 33. A person opens up a pit, or either he dug the pit, or he uncovered a pit that was covered up, and then an animal falls into there and, uh, and dies. We'll see for the continuation of the animal died. The person who owns the boar, the person who uh, dug the, this pit, should pay damages because he caused this animal to die. Kesef yashiv livalav, he should pay money for this dead animal. And then what do we do with the phrase, the last three words there, vahamet ye what do they seem to mean? The body, what about the body? Who keeps it? The yes, the per- yes, yes, so I dug a boar and I uh, harmed your animal when it fell in there, so I pay you the full cost of your animal, and I keep the dead body. The problem is that that isn't what the Gemara says. The Gemara says the and actually theoretically the uh, the there is no clear antecedent for the word low. It's unclear there there are two people here, the owner of the animal. And the person who dug the pit, and so saying the Hametiello, the Gemara says that uh, I am allowed to give you the dead body and say your animal was worth a thousand dollars while it was alive. This uh, carcass here is worth a hundred dollars. Here you go. Here's a hundred dollars. I give you the carcass, and I pay you nine hundred dollars uh, in addition to that. So that's what uh, that, that's what the Gemara says that it means. But all of us, when we read through this, we say to ourselves, you know, I, I assume that there was no doubt in anybody's mind when you were just looking at the verse, unless you've studied a lot of Gemara in your life, that the, 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 there was no doubt in your mind that actually the verse means that the person who caused the damage gets to keep the dead body and then he makes recompense with money. So Shadal and, and Rashbam already said this. He says the pshat here is that the uh, person who caused the damage keeps the dead body, and then he just pays money. Uh, so Shadal writes here: me me up. since he paid, uh, he paid the full cost of the animal, he paid the thousand dollars, and so he gets to keep the carcass and do whatever he wants. And then he says, but our rabbis in the Gemara hekelu al hamazik. So the rabbis actually, the rabbis are not, according to Shadal in this case, they are not interpreters of the text, but they are legislators. The rabbis legislated, they said, this is a very strict law. We'd like to make it easier for somebody who causes damages to actually fulfill his responsibility of paying for the damages that he caused. And so we're going to make a rule that says that you can pay with when I was a kid, they used to say that you could pay things with postage stamps if you want, uh, you know that, that you know that you didn't have to pay with uh, money, but you could pay with anything you wanted, including you could pay. It, partial payment by giving the carcass back. So, so Shadal says, I don't want to say that that's an interpretation of the verse. I want to say that that is rabbinic legislation. And Shadal uses this principle frequently to try to solve the tension that we often feel between what the rabbis say and what we think the verse means. Shadal had read extremely widely in biblical criticism. He was an opponent of biblical criticism. But he asked some of the same kinds of questions that modern people ask when they read the Bible and they read the old Jewish interpretations and sometimes feel that tension between what the Bible seems to be saying on the pshat level and what we learn from Chazal. Uh, Shadal makes up another fascinating interpretation of a text. Let's take a look at that text too. Shmot uh, Kaf Beit Kaf Hey. Twenty-two, twenty-five. Im Chavol Tachbol Salmat Reecha. If you take your neighbor's garment and pledge, you must return it to him before the sun sets. It's his only clothing, the sole covering for his skin. In what else shall he sleep? Therefore, if he cries out to me, I will pay heed, for I am compassionate. So, the understanding here is that there's a poor person who's so poor that the only thing that he can give for collateral when he can't replay, repay the debt that he owes is his pajamas. And so he gives his pajamas and the standard understanding of this text in rabbinic literature is that what do I do? I'm the, I'm the creditor. Uh, so what do I do uh, in this situation? What, 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 how do Khazal how, how how understand this text? Anybody know? Right, and then the next day what happens? Yes, in the morning I come and I take it. And then the next evening I return it. And then in the morning I come and I take it. And then the next day I return it. The I return it. That's the standard. You, you, you open up the Shulchan Aruch and that's what you'll find uh, there. Shadal thinks that that might not be what the verse actually means on the Pshat level. I'm reading text number four. The verse mentioned, uh, sorry, the text never said that he would come back the next morning and take away the pajamas again. It just says that you can take them and then you give it back. When evening comes, so that he'll have something to wear when he goes to sleep. Lohis <laughs> Kirakatu Shekh Zorvi Lena Baboker, Venirelefi Apshat Yaharshu, Niko Karshe, Enlo, Litin Bamashkon, Rak Salmato, Hitira Toral, Kachamimeno Salmato, the Yomechad, but often she eats directly hit Bazot, Velazet Belosimla, Oliot Kaluba Bait. So the Torah, actually, this is a fascinating new understanding of the text that says that the creditor is allowed to take that garment only once. And the assumption is that that's the only article of clothing that this person has. And then he's going to have to either go out naked or wrapped in a sheet or something, uh, some, uh, something like this, and uh, or stay in his home all day long. And if that didn't work to get him to return the debt, that means that he doesn't have the money to return the debt. And so you're allowed to do this once, says Shadal. That's what the Torah is actually saying. You're allowed to do it once. And after one day, if he still hasn't returned, if he hasn't repaid the debt... Then you believe him when he says that he doesn't have enough money to do this and you give the garment back to him. So where did the halakha come? So Shadal knows that that's not what the halakha says. So he says, V'razal amru so the, the 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 rabbi said that you you can take it as mashkon. if it's a, if it's his pajamas you can take it all day long and if it's uh, and if it's his day clothes you can take it all night long and you, keep, you can keep giving it back and day clothes are returned to him to use during the day and night clothes are uh, returned at night. How did that happen? He kelu so the rabbis legislated, they were worried that people, They perhaps they saw that people weren't willing to lend money to poor people if they weren't going to get any kind of collateral except for 12 hours worth of collateral. And so they, as legislators, in other words, He's defending what Chazal did as a reasonable halacha, a reasonable Jewish approach to this problem. We want poor people to be able to borrow money, and if there is no surety from the creditors that they are going to get, uh, they're going to get repaid. Then, uh, then there. No one's going to lend money to a poor person. So the rabbis he sees here as being legislators who changed the biblical law and they changed it here for the sake of making it easier to lend money defending the rights of the creditors a little bit. Okay. Uh Shadal Moving on to the next text here, Shadal has a very uh, interesting approach to the issue that many biblical critics, of course, make a big deal out of, which is that sometimes when a law appears in the Torah in two places, it looks like the details of the law aren't the same. And when you look at the details of the law about the Korban Pesach, the Paschal Sacrifice, in Devarim chapter 16, and you compare them with the details in Shmot Perakyut Bet, uh, biblical critics love to talk about, uh, about this, uh, problem. And the rabbis in the Gemara, uh, understood the problem of what looks like contradictions between these two texts, and they came up with their harmonizations of the problems. But Shadal's going to come up with, I think, a creative and brilliant, you can agree with it or disagree with it, but it's a creative and a brilliant another creative and brilliant way of solving what seems to be the the uh, what seem to be contradictions between these two texts so uh devarim parech uh, te zain chamoret chodesh aviv va sita pesach l'shemelokha observe uh, pesach in the spring make a korban uh, to god keep a chodesh aviv otziacha l'shemelokha mi'etzrayim laila because uh, you were taken out of egypt uh, at that time of year. And you should sacrifice to God, uh, a, your korban pesach, uh, sheep or cattle, or sheep and cattle, uh, at the place that God told you to do this. And you shall bashal. I'm not going to translate that word, but uh, you shall bashal, and you shall eat it in the place that the Lord your God chose. And then uh, the next day you go home. Okay, so that's what it says in Devarim. But what does it say in Shmot? Set zahar ben shana lachem <laughs> min tikachu. It shall be a uh, an unblemished uh, lamb that either comes from uh, the uh, from sheep or from the uh, goats. Eat the flesh roasted. You're not allowed to eat it. Cooked, boiled, it has to be roasted. So, there appear to be two very serious problems when you compare these two texts with each other. One that the text in Shmot says that the animal has to be from the uh, sheep or from the goats, while in Devarim uh, it, it says that the animal. It seems to be saying son uh, uvakar, from uh, from the flock or from the cattle, in other words, that a, uh, a cow uh, or a bull uh, would be allowed. And the other problem is that Shemot says you're not allowed to eat it mevushal, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to eat it when it's been cooked, and Devarim says, mm-hmm. uvishalta ve'achalta, and you shall bashal it. So there are... Standard harmonizations that are suggested by the Gemara and that Bashal, we all know from, from our Hebrew, that Bashal can mean to boil something, but it can also be a general word for cooking. That the person who's in charge of the bishul in the in in the household might not necessarily be boiling something. Uh, he or she might be frying or uh, or roasting or whatever, and we still can refer to that. So bashal can have two different meanings to it. It can refer to so maybe in, in Shmod, it's talking about bashal in the terms of uh, of uh, uh, of boiling, and in Devarim it's using bashal in the in, in its wider sense of cooking. And so that's, and, and the other, uh, harmonization is that the Gemara says that when it says Tzonuvakar, it's referring both to the Korban Pesach and to the Korban Chagiga. There was a further Korban that was brought on Pesach, which was the Korban Chagiga. So there is no contradiction here. So that's the standard harmonization. Shadal thinks he came up with a better harmonization. Uh, Tzonuvakar. This is at the bottom of page one. Lafi Hapshat. Pesach Mitzrayim lo haya ella min hatzon vlo haya neechal The rules in Shmot chapter twelve are for that Pesach of that first time when Am Yisrael celebrated Pesach while we were still in Egypt, and this was a specific rule for that evening that it had to be roasted and that it had to be. Uh, a sheep or a goat. Hakol and all because the principle in chapter 12 of Shmot is that the Korban Pesach had to be done quickly and uh so, roasting is the fastest way of preparing meat. And a a big animal, like a cow or a bull, takes an awful long time to roast the entire animal. And so, that's why a smaller animal was chosen and why roasting was chosen. But the Torah said that Korban Pesach, in further generations, Hayat Son Obakar it could have been, according to the legislation in Sefer Dvarim, it could have been a sheep or it could have been a bull. And it was permitted... To uh, to boil this animal because there wasn't a principle we all know our, in our seder's we uh, generally do not have this principle of chipazon <laughs> that we have to finish the seder quickly that that was a, a pesach mitzrayim that was a principle of uh, of, of chipazon uh, okay that solves the uh, that solves the contradiction between the verses but what about the halacha the halacha does not say what Shadal said. And so Shadal says, The Jewish people voted uh, with their own actions. That even though the Torah, Sefer Dvarim, allowed them to bring uh, another animal, allowed them to bring a cow or a bull if they were interested, they said, we want to do it in the old-fashioned way. We want, so, and we, we remember, we want to remember Pesach Mitzrayim. And that's, uh, and so that's why the halacha is the way that it is. Um, Shadal realizes that very often he portrayed the rabbis as being legislators. And one point in his uh, commentary, the uh, text number six here. It doesn't even matter what the uh, uh, what the context here is. You can look it up if you wish. It's Vayik Razayin Yudchet. He writes, kamashanim Shaiti matmiya al razal." For many years now, I've been wondering about the rabbis. Lama, why? as Rashbam once uh, asked, "Akru zemi zemibshuto." Why did the rabbis interpret this verse in a way that doesn't seem to go along with the simple understanding of the verse? Hayom, Purim, Taf Reish Zayin. Today, Purim, 1847. You see what he's doing on Purim. He's uh, sitting there studying Vayikra and trying to figure out uh, why the rabbis came up with a different interpretation of the verse than Vayikra, than the pshat uh, would seem to suggest. Sakhiti lahavin marahu al-kacha. Uh, Mara Urakach has a uh, phrase from Migilat Aster that he just throws in there. So, so today I finally understood. Whenever the rabbis offer an interpretation that doesn't seem to be the interpretation of the pshat, I'm not talking about when there's a dispute between two rabbis and one rabbi comes up, uh, but, uh, but whenever there's a uh, kind of unanimous, Opinion of the rabbis of a uh, an interpretation of the verse, and it doesn't look to us to be the simple meaning of the verse. <speaking in Hebrew> Don't think that that's because they made a mistake. <speaking in Hebrew> but it was because they were legislators, because they looked at what the generation needed and they interpreted interpreted in quotation marks. They Wrote about this text in a way that was, uh, appropriate for their generation. And here's the kind of shocking phrase here. Umiha mohem reformator. Where can you find reformers like them? You know, this. you know, the, the reformator is what they call people like uh, Geiger and uh, the, the reform rabbis. He said, can you find a reform rabbi like Chazal? You know, you know, that, you know, who? They, they, they did this. Aval. But you should know the difference between them and the reform rabbis. Aval hayu ha'yub'echochma amuka ubiyirat ha'shem va'avat ha'adam. But whenever they made up legislation, it was because they had great wisdom, they had deep fear of God, and they loved human beings. They didn't come up with legislation in order to make themselves uh, more important or to make themselves get more honor. And and also not in order to just... uh, make a, a, a nice impression on on people. That's what he's saying, that the reform rabbis are doing. And Hazal, he said, legislated, but they legislated with Yirat Hashem, with the fear of God, and with uh, love of the Jewish uh, people. Um, he says further in the verse that says that if a... Uh, if someone curses uh his or her father or mother, uh the it's a capital offense." Shadal says in text number seven here, Anybody who studies ancient history knows that in uh, patriarchal, the ancient patriarchal societies, the father was in charge of his house, and if he felt that there was insubordination from one of the members of the household, he could kill one of the members of the household, even a child of his hu the. the Torah took this right away from a parent. A parent is not allowed to kill uh, a child and gave this uh, and, and gave this right to the baytin. Still, this looks like a really strict rule that anybody who curses his mother or father should die, but he says, the judges were told how to apply this rule, and they were told. People whispered to them, "Don't do this," you know. Don't, you know. And and and, and they didn't do it. matzanu uh, razal matzrichim b'shem And 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 we we find even in rabbinic literature that it says that the only time that a child is chayav mitah for cursing a parent is when the child says the unpronounceable name of God, the unpronounced and unpronounceable name of God, yud Vavhe, vav Hey, as part of the curse of the parents. So, is a way of legislating it out of existence. Because the uh, so why is it there? The Dubmatze Ben sorer Umore. And we all know that, that that same thing from the concept of the uh, rebellious child, the uh, Ben sorer Umore, who it says is killed. Gamsham razalt na'im krovala nimna The rabbis made so many conditions that it was essentially impossible or very close to impossible for somebody to be killed. Vzeum nam klal gadol. And here's the principle. Harbe mishpatim tsrichim lehe derech Sometimes you have to express yourself strongly about a principle, and to say that a child should not be cursing a parent, then you say this is a capital offense when a child curses a parent. and that doesn't mean that actually using that punishment would be the right thing to do. Except in very unusual circumstances would these be applied. And you have to tell the judges about this quietly. Because otherwise, the rhetorical effect of the law is lost and that 's why the Torah uh, constantly tells us to uh, listen to the judges who are uh, in every generation so Shadal seems like a very uh, very modern type of person, but he also was uh, was very uh, old fashioned from time to time. Uh, Here's a comment of his. It doesn't really matter what what he's commenting on, uh, but he says Gam Rabah. This is uh, Rav Abraham ben Ezra. This is text number eight. Both Ibn Ezra vegam Anybody know who Rambaman is? Pardon me. Moses Mendelssohn. Very good. Uh, yes. <laughs> Ibn Ezra. It's funny. Ibn Ezra was a great poet, but he said uh, Ibn Ezra and Mendelssohn had great problem understanding this phrase here because it's kind of a poetic phrase in this verse. But Rashi could taste the Hebrew language. He said, you know, he you know, he, he just has has this sense of the Hebrew language. Hadavar Yo. And so he has the right understanding because he had this sense of Hebrew that was better than that of uh, uh Ibn Ezra who was no slouch in Hebrew language. And Mendelssohn also his Hebrew was pretty good. Uh and 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 yet uh, Shadal says that he has a preference for the old fashioned interpretations of uh, Rashi. Uh, while he shared many values with Rabbi Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, I mentioned this to someone who's sitting in the room now. I uh, uh, didn't know you were coming to the, uh, to, to the uh, session today. I'm sorry for the uh, repetition. There's a, uh, a little ditty that Shadal once wrote. He got a letter from Rabbi Shimshon Rafal Hirsch who wrote to Shadal in German, uh, which wasn't a problem. Shadal read German just fine. But it, it would be kind of like if I were to write a letter to some highly educated rabbi in France and I wrote it in English. He'd probably be able to understand it, but he'd probably wonder, why is this guy not writing to me in Hebrew? And and so uh, when Shadal got this uh, letter from Rabbi Shimshon Rafal Hirsch. He wrote this little ditty, uh, making fun of uh, Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch. Mahayalo lebali lebal igrot What got into this guy uh, who wrote this book, uh, igrot Tzafon, uh We call it 19 letters in English. Hanefach liod Geiger or Holtheim? <laughs> is is he like uh, Rabbi Geiger or Rabbi Holtheim, those reform rabbis? Ki ichdov Shadal belashon hat That he's written the shadal, a letter in that northern European uh, language, Velo Bisfat Yehuda of and he didn't, he didn't write, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in the language that uh, rabbis from different countries communicate uh, uh, to each other with that language, which is uh, of course Hebrew, the language of uh, Yehuda and uh, Yerushalayim. Shatal, uh, so I think until now, I've dealt mostly with what I would call his, uh, except for this last uh, ditty here, uh, I've dealt with his uh, uh, exegetical methodology, his method as a commentator on the Bible, but I wanted to spend the rest of the time talking about uh, his worldview, which also is a worldview that I think is, uh, I find, speaks to me in the 21st century uh, in in a very uh, very nice way, so Shadal is dealing in the text at the bottom of page two with the difficult word onata, uh, which is uh, which which appears in Shmot uh, Kaf Yud, the obligation to, uh, among the obligations that a uh, an owner of a Hebrew handmaiden uh, uh, ha- hand has to this handmaiden, and the obligations are she'er, k'sut, and onah. She'er seems to be food, k'sut means clothing, and onah and one of the interpretations of ona, the one that is the standard interpretation of Chazal, and the interpretation that Chazal is going, that the Shadal is going to uh, defend here, is that ona means uh, uh, means uh, the sexual rights. That uh, that that uh, w- the assumption is that this man is going to marry this Hebrew handmaiden, and he should not. deny her, once he has uh, married her, he should not uh, deny her sexual satisfaction. Uh, I'll start at the second line. This is what the Torah is saying about somebody who has married a handmaiden whom he has purchased. And certainly it applies as a Kalvachomer when a man... uh, marries a free woman, Velo And this is what Khazal also say that uh, a man who uh, who marries a, uh, a Bat-Chorin certainly is uh, responsible for her food, her clothing, and uh, and uh, satisfying her sexually. Vina Khazal Bakoch Matamu Vitzid Katam Raukihai Nena Kli Velo Nivrat Litoela Taish The rabbis understood with their wisdom that a woman isn't just a vessel that's there that was created to make men happy, to serve men and to make them happy. When he uses this language of saying that she is a nenakli, he knows very well that that phrase appears in Chazal, in the Gemara, in, uh, in Sanhedrin. Uh, it, it, appears, uh, Haisha, I wrote it down here on one of my many pieces of paper here. Ein Haisha, Koretet, lamisha Osa, Ota, Kli. That, uh, in a cons- in, in a discussion of the relationship between, uh, uh, a first husband and a first wife, that there's a special bond between a woman and the man who first made her into a vessel. So, 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 so Shatal says, the woman is not a vessel. A man and his wife are two partners. They came together of their own free will, to help each other with love and with fraternity. And they, it's not just the rabbi said that a man is not allowed to deny his wife's sexuality. They even the rabbis even worried about little details that a man should not say, I don't care about the enjoyment that my wife gets out of this. The, the, the uh, rabbi say that a man who says, I'm not taking my clothes off uh, for the sexual act. I'm keeping my clothes on. So there's an understanding that a woman does not find that attractive, that the man uh, is just keeping his clothes on while the sexual act is going on. And they said, that a man is not allowed to do this, and then he goes into a little bit of a surprising uh, uh, commercial here. And so the the, the approach of Chazal is. Uh, is opposite on the one side to the, the scoundrels who go around looking for sexual satisfaction everywhere and leaving their wives alone uh, at home, uh, uh, living uh, kind of living widowhood. The hefach mizeh mitzadachher, and the other thing that the rabbis are against, the other opposite pole that the rabbis are against, d'arkei ha-mitchakmim, the people who think that the wife is there as a servant to serve the man and as a kind of tonic to keep the man healthy and he quotes here from Rambam so in, in, in case you uh, are wondering who he's disagreeing with he's disagreeing with the sexual ethics of Rambam who says that a man should only uh, have intercourse when he finds that he's really healthy and strong and he's doing it in order to make himself uh, 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 in order to help himself is the way he understands Rambam there, somebody else might want to stick up for Rambam and say that Rambam was not. But Shadal is saying that kind of sexual ethics is not the Jewish sexual ethics. Misha Torah, he Torah, Moshe, talmud And he's saying here, and uh, scholars would agree with Shadal, that, that Rambam got some of his sexual ethics from Aristotle and from the Greek philosophers and that's why he said the things uh, that he said but somebody who bases their uh, ethics and their sexual ethics on the on moshe and on the mishnah and the talmud what he does who he loves his wife as much as he loves himself he honors her more than he honors himself and uh, about somebody like this, we say, you will know that you will have a good home, a healthy marriage, if that is what you are doing. So, Shadal, in many ways, speaks to us uh, with our modern values. There's a very long text here that I like to try to read through. That's I, I, I translated it into English because I knew that it would take a long time to read through it in Hebrew. And this is my own translation. Uh, you can uh, you can check it when you get home and look up uh, Shadal. I, I should just mention that there's a, a wonderful resource, if some of you don't know this resource, called uh, uh, alhatora.org. A L H A T O R A H dot org, where there is a Mikraotka Dolot online with many commentaries and the translations of many commentaries. And so uh, Shadal's commentary is now, even if you don't own the book, you could just open up alatorah.org, ask for the mikra gedolot on Deuteronomy six five and you'll see Shadal's uh, Shadal's commentary. Okay. So Deuteronomy six five is the famous verse the uh, et the mitzvah to love God, which is uh you know a beautiful concept, but it's a very difficult concept to understand. And what does it mean precisely to love God? What this mitzvah the mitzvah to love God means, requires explanation. Actually, there's no real inherent difficulty or doubt about it. If it were not for the fact that the mitpalsifim is kind of this negative word, meaning philosophers, these people who are doing philosophy, uh, imported the ideas of Greek thinkers into the Torah, and they changed various aspects of the Torah to get them to concur with the philosophers. And since this is an impossible thing to do, they took Torah and philosophy and they made of them a mishmash that is neither Torah nor philosophy and they ended up losing on both counts. So the whole question yes, the whole question of loving God gets complicated by the Jewish philosophers because the Jewish philosophers wish us to have a conception of God in which love doesn't work very well. You know, if, if God is the prime mover and he's not subject to any change and he's not subject to any emotion and he's not subject to anything that, uh, that human beings are subject to, what does it mean to have a love relationship with God? So, Shadal said, the Jewish philosophers have made this question more difficult than it need need be. Nowadays, that old type of philosophy exists no longer. Now, in the 19th century, nobody really believes that Aristotle and Plato uh, have the truth in their writing. The Jewish books are still filled with it, but you open up all these old Jewish books of the people who we venerate, and they're all thinking that Aristotle and Plato are uh, are the final word about things, so that neither true scholars nor true Torah Jews find satisfaction in them. So uh, when you open up these books of medieval Jewish philosophy, now in the 19th century, he says, the true philosophers don't like those books that much, and the true Torah Jews don't like the, those books so much, so I, I, I don't get what they're about. And he goes on. Uh, he really, uh, you know, no holds barred here. I really am amazed at the Jewish philosophers. How didn't they realize that what the Torah wants is not what philosophy wants? Philosophy wants us to know and to recognize truth. Torah wants us to do what is right and what is good. That's a big difference. And I think that that's a very good way of saying what the difference is between philosophy and uh, and and. and and torah Torah wants us to do the right thing, and philosophy wants us to know and recognize truth and If the Torah teaches us such philosophical ideas as the unity of God and the fact that the world was created, it wasn't for the purpose that we would then acquire the true knowledge of God and recognition of his perfection that wasn't the torah's purpose it was not so that we would become philosophers, rather it was so as to implant in our souls useful beliefs that will lead us towards justice and righteousness. The Torah's goal is the goal of doing right, (coughs) of doing justice and righteousness. And that's the Torah knows that there are various beliefs that might lead us in this direction. And that is why the Torah always minimizes when it describes God, it describes God as kind of being less great than God is, and makes Him seem closer to the level of humans, attributing to Him anger and will, love and hate, happiness and sadness, and various other ways of saying that He is affected by things that happen external to Him, or that He is subject to deficiencies, which are all th- both. Both of those things are things that the philosophers say that you can never say about God. You can't say that God is affected by something that happens, or that God changes because uh, of something uh, outside of him, or that there's any deficiency in God, something that God is, uh, is missing. But anybody who reads the Bible understands that the Bible writes about God in that manner. All, and why does it write about this? All this is done so as to establish some connection between us and him. It's, a, it, it's for the sake of us human beings, because the Bible wants us to have a connection with God. And so it has to describe God. It's the old principle of Debra Torah, Gil, Shon, Adam. The Torah had to speak in the language of human beings, and it had to describe God in the language of human beings. But to the contrary, if we imagine in our hearts the God of the philosophers who is perfect in an infinite form of perfection, then it is simply impossible to imagine any connection between him and human beings, and one could not imagine any religion of the world's religion. What purpose can there be for prayer if God is not subject to being affected? What purpose is there for tshuva if God's will is not subject to change? So, when creating a religion was necessary to describe God in this language. And if you say to me, if you are right that Torah and philosophy are mutually exclusive, then that means that one of them is a lie. That means you are neither either an opponent of Torah uh, an opponent of Torah or an opponent of philosophy. Know that neither of these is the case. I deny this. You don't have to make a choice between Torah and philosophy. I see human beings composed of two opposing forces, reason and inner feelings. It is impossible to glorify the one and reject the other. You can't say, I'm all reason or I'm just feelings. uh, and, And we know people who are overly into reason, and we know people who are all overly into feeling, well, that's the way I feel, and that's the end of the discussion, because that's the way they feel, and that's the only thing that to, to talk about. There's no reason after that. It's impossible to glorify the one and reject the other, for people, whether they like it or not, are under the control of both of these forces. And that is why the true Torah and the true philosophy, what's the true philosophy? The one that isn't written in one book, but is found scattered in many books, mixed in with all sorts of errors and inaccuracies. Both of them are really the words of the living God. They're both true, and different understandings of truth. Both of them are appropriate to the nature of human beings. Both of them are true according to different understandings of truth. Now I shall return to discuss the love of God, after this introduction that says, don't get stuck with those philosophers, but... Just be willing to accept the idea of God being someone with whom you can establish a relationship. I say that since the divine Torah saw fit to speak in human language and to describe God as subject to change and as susceptible to anger and to will, to love and to hate, it therefore is appropriate to descri- describe people also as loving God or hating him. So. The way the Torah felt that it was okay to talk about God loving something or hating something, so it's appropriate for the Torah to talk about us loving God or, God forbid, hating God. For the person who always bears God in mind and is always considering how to do what he wants and how to observe his laws and regulations, such a person would be called a lover of God someone who does not think about God and does not refrain from doing what God despises and who is constantly seeking new abominations to sin in, someone like that is called someone who hates God. Loving God, then, is not a separate mitzvah. It includes all the mitzvot. You know, if you're giving marital counseling to somebody, you can't say to them, love your spouse. You can say to them, like, Try to be nice to your spouse. Try to think about your spouse. Try to do things that will make your spouse uh, 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 happy. Uh, And that's what it means. When the Torah tells us to love God, what it means is that we're supposed to do the things that God wants us to do. It includes all the mitzvot. It doesn't make sense to command people to love God, just like you can't say love that person. Although you should love your father, what if the person doesn't love the father? There's a command to honor a father, but there's a how can you? The same is true of loving your neighbor or loving the stranger. All that it means is that we should take steps to do what will be beneficial to them, and we should refrain from doing that which will hurt them or anger them. That that's what the love that the Torah is. speaking. Speaking about when it talks about God, when it talks about a neighbor, and when it talks about the stranger, it's telling us to be nice to these people. The kind of love described by the medieval Jewish philosopher, the author of Chovot HaLevavot, since the soul comes from the world of pure spirit, its natural tendency is to spirit, and when the light of wisdom shines on it, it will naturally separate itself from the pleasures of this world and have nothing to do with anything other than God and it will never think of anything else. All of this has nothing to do with Moses' Torah. This... Approach is taken from the philosophers who had only disdain for the simple people who didn't do the necessary work of this world. So some philosophers see just having this connection between me and God, and it's just me and God. In the same way that sometimes lovers are interested only in each other and are forgetting about the rest of the uh, the the rest of the world, he said that's not what the Torah had in mind. Maimonides thought that true love of God is only possible for the person who understands all of existence and that it is a function of that person's understanding. To that end, he included in his laws of the foundations of the Torah three chapters to teach people about creation in order the true love of God would enter their hearts. All of this is so distant from the purpose of the Torah. <laughs> (laughs) Those three chapters have nothing in common with the rest of his Mishneh Torah. Had he been a true philosopher, shocking kind of line to say about Rambam, had he been a true philosopher, he would have realized that a new generation would come along and disprove the theories of Aristotle and the students concerning biology and astronomy and that his book would become the guide to lies. this language here, uh, you know that Rambam made the mistake of thinking that philosophy never changes. Those of us who study philosophy understand that philosophy changes all of the time. I say none of this, skipping to the next paragraph, I say none of this with the intention of diminishing even by hairbreadths the honor due to uh, to Maimonides. Okay. Next paragraph, my purpose in writing all this is not in order to dissuade the youth from studying wisdom and languages. Never has that thought crossed the minds of my ancestors or my teachers, the rabbis of Italy. And he's right about that. There was always a wonderful tradition in Italy. The rabbis were supportive of people getting a good secular education. My sole purpose is to try to keep the youth from accepting without thinking whatever the current popular and respected philosophy is in their generation. This is a bitter illness that comes upon them not because they are seeking truth, but because they are seeking assumed honor and are hoping to find favor in the eyes of their contemporaries. But those who love, who truly love truth and wisdom know that there are many ideas that were popular for one or many generations and are now forgotten or disparaged. And there are many opinions that for a long time were considered disgraceful and now the earth is filled with them. And so getting... Relating to the current philosophy as being Torah Lamosha Misenai is a big error to make. You can all decide yourself whether you like this approach or not like this approach, but here, here you are.